Hey everybody, thanks for listening to the show. I just want to remind everyone that we have a Twitter account, at RealSpecific, where I will post updates and any memes and things that we produce. And if you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, please reach out to us at realspecificpod at gmail.com. Or drop by our anchor.fm page to leave us a voice message that can be added directly into the show. Thanks again, and enjoy. Wow. Uh, Definitely start with that. (laughs) It's pretty solid. We need like a a song or something to be like the intro. <laughs> yeah, I keep telling myself I'm gonna record just like some guitar stuff and use that as our intro stuff. Do you remember the uh, show Greek? Mm. It was like on ABC. It was about fraternity dudes. It kind of sucked, <laughs> but their opening thing was like three guitar chords. But it was very recognizable. I guess I'm saying it doesn't have to be like a very good or fancy song, but oh yeah, something. No, I ain't worried about that. Just you know, getting myself to sit down and record it. Yeah, so fair enough. (laughs) Welcome back to Real Specific. I'm Jake, and with me is my friend Klaus. Klaus, how you doing? Hey, I'm Klaus. Talked over you immediately. (laughs) (laughs) I changed up my intro, so. Uh, This is Real Specific, the show where every month we pick a very specific subgenre of movie and dive into it with a few examples each week. This month we're doing Invading the Homes of the Disabled. And this week we're covering Hush 2016, directed by Mike Flanagan. So far this month we've watched two movies about blind protagonists, and we've been following the themes of how our protagonist is handling their disability. We're also following, like, whether their other senses are more level, more grounded, or more supernatural. And we're kind of looking at how they've adapted to their situation and their surroundings. How would you describe our characters from our previous two movies? Ooh, making me think. Pop quiz. I'd say... As far as how they're handling their... As far as how they're handling, I would say closer to grounded than supernatural but with some supernatural uh some elements of of heightened other senses yeah once again we can't really use our first movie as any kind of baseline that movie was awful in every respect and then don't breathe the the smell thing was the only like everything else could have been just him you know planning and knowing his environment the smell thing was just yeah, it was believable besides that. Yeah, this one felt more grounded. Yeah, I like this one a lot. We'll see how she handles it. So our movie this week, basic plot summary, deaf author moves out to the country to get away from everyone and everything, and then she's accosted by a serial killer. That's good enough. <laughs> yeah, yeah. 
That's it. Mike Flanagan. So he is the director of... He was a writer and director of Dr. Sleep, the follow-up to The Shining. He's writer of The Haunting of Hill House on Netflix, which is about to have its second season, The Haunting of Bly Manor, uh, writer and director of Gerald's Game, straight to Netflix movie, uh, as well as Oculus 2013, Ouija Origin of Evil 2016. So uh, this guy has had a great career so far in genre film, and I have loved most things that I've seen that he's made. Klaus, have you seen any of these others that he's made? I don't think so. I don't watch much horror, which is funny, but I, none of those ring any bells. Okay. I, I definitely recommend The Haunting of Hill House if you want to see. It's a short eight or ten episode series, so go check it out. He likes houses. <laughs> yeah, uh, a That's... friend of a couple of friends of mine were actually like, "This Mike Flanagan guy kind of has like one or two ideas, huh?" I wouldn't say that. He's into genre, they, but they do all start with. So there's this house, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, like he's he's done two great Stephen King adaptations. His original stuff. They have very similar themes, yes, but he's done a couple of haunted item movies. He's done some haunted house but i mean this is nothing supernatural hush i mean hush is just straight up invasion horror i like it like it a lot so let's uh talk about our actors real quick so first we have john gallagher jr playing the man or the killer as we will refer to him kate siegel who is maddie or the author, we'll probably call her Maddie most of the time. Uh, she's our main protagonist. Then we have very short-lived characters throughout the movie. Michael Truco, who is John, or neighbor boyfriend. Uh, Samantha Sloyan as Sarah, or neighbor girl. And Emma Graves as Max, or the sister of Maddie. Yeah, so we start introducing ourselves to the author or Maddie and her neighbor friend, girlfriend. They're chatting and you realize that she is deaf. Um, a deaf author lost it when she was a child from a meningitis infection. Maddie's outside on the porch talking to her neighbor friend who's getting to know her and she's, you know, they're talking about her book and blah blah blah. This is where we get introduced to Maddie's quote-unquote writer brain and how she hears a voice in her head that sounds like her mom's. We'll save the dominoes effect for that later, but we we just need to mention it right here. You have anything you want to say about it right now? No, beyond a domino has been placed, essentially. Yeah, we'll get to that much later. She, you find out a few other details about her life that she's was in a relationship but is no longer. She's struggling writing the end of a book. Blah blah blah. There's a cat. Uh, kind of setting up the context to the film. I guess uh, big points here are she's not only deaf, but partial or almost complete vocal cord paralysis. So she can't like scream or make noises or anything. She's coming off the high of writing a best-selling book. And now she's trying to follow it up with that big second book which uh, she's obviously frustrated with. Frustrated with love. We find out she's like, she joins a dating website for the deaf, but there's only like four deaf guys around her. So she's like, yeah, that's kind of what you get for moving out in the middle of nowhere if you're looking for a specific (laughs) subset of people. Yeah, I mean, overall, she just seems very... She doesn't really play up the depressed side as much as she probably should, but she just seems very frustrated with everything around her. 
Yeah, I think I think so. Um, she doesn't. You're right. She doesn't really seem <laughs> excessively depressed or anything, but just frustrated with life. But making the most of it as best she can. And she has a cat and, and a nice house out in the country somewhere. Few neighbors, obviously, but not many. She's drinking some wine. Wait, uh, she talks to the neighbor for a bit. They go away. You find out the cat's name is Bitch, which is, I think, notable and important and crucial. Well, hey, you don't actually know that's the cat's name until much later in the movie. Come on. <laughs> oh, shit, that's right. That's the big reveal. Yeah, that's the that big that reveal. is the big twist yeah. in this film. <laughs> But she seems socially well-adjusted. That seems like a bad phrasing, but uh, author Maddie is doing mostly okay considering everything. Nighttime comes, neighbor goes home. Yeah, I, I guess we really just need to touch the big... We, we say the words set up and pay off a lot on this podcast, and honestly, I just think that's too many words to say all the fucking time. So I'm going to shorten it to dominoes from now on. And I will refer to specific points as a domino. Specifically in this, dominoes are, I'm cooking dinner. I don't see any flames. Not yet. Ha 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 ha. Fire starts in the kitchen. Introduce fire alarm. These are all dominoes setting up stuff for way later in the movie. Neighbor girlfriend putting her phone in her back pocket. Domino. And even Maddie chatting on her phone, her laptop, and drinking wine. All dominoes, baby. All dominoes all the time. Hashtag not sponsored by Domino's Pizza, but if you want to give us pizza. Hey, I'm down. I'm down. A free medium pizza every five pizzas I get isn't enough. I need more. <laughs> oh, and even the cat is technically a domino for a plot point later. Yeah, we didn't even talk oh, about shit. that yet. <laughs> Holy shit. Should we talk about the elephant in the room? I guess we can. I don't see any problem in letting them in on it. The, the big uh, deja vu, what's going on effect. <laughs> yeah, so last episode was our cursed episode where we had to record three times to finally get it. And this one, not really cursed, mostly just us being bad. The first time we tried to do this, I guess we were both sleep deprived and, you know, just bad at creating content so it, i was editing it and it was so boring i was falling asleep not even halfway through editing it so we're gonna do this again we're gonna make it right we're gonna keep you people entertained that's why i'm here that's why i do this i think you texted and, and said something to the effect of you know one this is boring but two we it seems like we were just summarizing what happened you know you could read the back of the dvd if it came on that and kind of get the same information we weren't really driving deep enough so we're going to try to drive long yeah and and we kept repeating ourselves which i mostly blame on us but i'm partially going to blame on this movie and having to redo this podcast has actually lowered my rating of this movie <laughs> because <laughs> i've had to think about it for like three full weeks at this point so when we when we get to rating it at the end remind me give me your rating after one watch and then give me your rating after a second yeah pass. yeah i will <laughs> um but i mean and we'll get into it more later but this plot ends up being a little repetitive kind of how we were in that episode in that lost forgotten recording of the episode so i'm gonna blame it a little bit on the movie but it's mostly our fault so We'll we'll fix that this time. Well, getting into the movie and kind of how it was created, 
you know, what can you tell us about its creation, the budget, some of the original ideas that inspired it? So I mentioned at the end of the last episode, this movie had a budget of $1 million. Modern filmmaking, that is nothing for a budget. That If you go and make a movie for a million dollars nowadays, like it has to be a passion project that you just want to see on the screen. The director, Mike Flanagan, and his wife, Kate Siegel, wrote this together. They were actually just like sitting at home, and Mike Flanagan was like, I want to make a movie with zero dialogue, which is something a lot of filmmakers think about doing at some point. It's a great idea. I love it. So he and his wife come up with this deaf mute character and they decide to do a home invasion movie that's just going to be all action and they actually storyboard the entire movie together just around their house. The problem with that being when they got to this house in Alabama where they actually shot the movie they realized that it didn't have the same layout as their home. And when you storyboard an entire movie in your home with no dialogue, you find out that the layout of the house and the set becomes absurdly important to the entire movie. <laughs> so they had to redo most of the script just to fit the new layout of the house. On top of that, Mike Flanagan, like I said, wanted to have zero dialogue, and he even played around with the idea of having a completely silent film made in 2016, but as he got to looking at it, he realized, oh, if I put a completely silent film in a theater nowadays, people are just going to be distracted by noises around them, stupid kids are going to be on their cell phones the whole time, and not everybody's going to have their shit on mute, so you're going to be distracted the entire time, so they did end up putting some dialogue in this movie. It's not an exceedingly large amount, and that's why I might have one or two clips picked out for the podcast, but you guys aren't going to hear much directly from the movie because there's really just not that much there. It was produced by Blumhouse. I can't say I'm a huge fan of their money-making scheme, but at the same time it works, and I get a lot of horror movies out of it. So, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> the movie originally premiered at South by Southwest, and it was then picked up by Netflix for a wide release. So it never actually got like a wide theater release. It just kind of got picked up by Netflix and released that way. Which Blumhouse has shown it is totally fine with teaming up with streaming partners. They've got a bunch of really shit Blumhouse movies on uh, Hulu right now, if you want to go watch some terrible horror suspense stuff. And I think this was the beginning of Mike Flanagan's relationship with Netflix, which has blossomed into a wonderful career for him. That That's interesting, too, about the house in Alabama versus their own house. I wonder if they considered ever just doing it in their house. I, I, I'm pretty sure they kind of wanted to, but I don't think they wanted to go through the whole hell of taking out well house. taking out all of their furniture and shit and you know replacing it all with set dressing basically not to mention not being able to live at your house for like a month or however long it would take to shoot the film like yeah god and and maybe it's different for people who make horror or watch horror movies more consistently but i would not be able to sleep in that house after literally filming a horror movie <laughs> i guess it depends on how every method. bump would set me off <laughs> i guess it depends on how method you are yeah. <laughs> yeah. My fear is very real. But yeah, so I like the background. Uh, I do need to say too, Kate Siegel, his wife, they like working together. She's also in The Haunting of Hill House. She is the sister Theo in that show. So if you've seen it, you'll know her from that as well.
she's Maddie again. And that first section is kind of all setting up the context to the film, setting up all these dominoes that are going to come into play and all come tumbling down later. And the next section of the film really kind of starts leading up to Maddie in the house. And it's lots of tension building. We are introduced to the killer in dramatic fashion as Maddie's cooking dinner, but of course she can't hear her neighbor screaming and finally the killer coming up to finish off the neighbor. And then there's these moments where, at least for me, I wasn't sure. I was like, I was thinking, is this guy her old boyfriend? And you find out no, because he obviously didn't know that she couldn't hear until he's tapping on the glass and she's just not responding. But there's this whole section of building tension He's moving around the house, opening doors, messing with stuff, setting up the next section of the film. Yeah, the the introduction of our killer is pretty great. I mean, we have Neighbor Girl, who we saw earlier, just come running out of the darkness covered in blood, and she's banging on the glass door trying to get Maddie's attention. And for whatever reason, Maddie keeps turning away from the door when she's turning around in the kitchen trying to clean up. Ooh, boy, just crossbow bolts coming out of nowhere. <laughs> Mike Flanagan hates jump scares, and I have a feeling Blumhouse was like, well, we gotta have jump scares, bruh. So his his depiction of jump scares are mostly crossbow bolts flying in from off screen and hitting something loudly, <laughs> which I kind of enjoy. Crossbow bolt out of nowhere just hits neighbor girl in the back, and then this killer with his crazy looking mask just comes up and stabs her multiple times and eventually drags her body off screen. Ooh, that mask. How creepy was that shit? Uh, it was terrifying. It was just human enough. It's kind of reminiscent of like a Michael Myers mask in that it's just a very blank, nondescript humanoid face with very little features on it. The eyes are wide enough to where you can see the killer's eyes beneath. It's definitely a mask. It's very creepy. The being able to see his eyes very clearly is, I think, what creeps me out the most because you can... You can see the emotion of the person behind the mask, but the very generic, featureless face covering it just gives it this uncanny valley feel to it. It's very unsettling. I'm kind of I'm kind of sad that he doesn't keep it on longer, or maybe not through the whole movie, but definitely longer than this. Yeah, because it, it doesn't take long for, for that to come off. Eventually, the killer kind of makes himself known to Maddie because she's she's trying to write her book. She's having trouble. There's, again, it's all building tension because she ends up Skyping with one of her friends. Yeah, and so for the next, after the neighbor is killed and then dragged off, the killer now recognizes that she can't hear and is taking advantage of it to basically do really creepy shit. Um, so there's... When she's distracted by either cooking or talking to her friend or her sister on Skype, he removes the cell phone. It's always something that is addressed in horror films <laughs> one way or another, whether, oh, my signal's bad or it's destroyed or in this case taken. And that's the thing is this is done logically and much better than our other movies. I mean, fucking Mischief Night. Jesus, how many times do I have to talk about this movie? Everything was wrong with the cell phones in that movie. You got the dad whose cell phone is apparently turned off for most of the movie, but then she tries calling it for the fourth time and magically it's on his body and ringing as loud as humanly possible. Then you have her phone being moved around but not taken from her. Then you have her phone being dropped, broken, and having bad signal all on top of... What the fuck is this shit? 
It feels so sloppy, too, because I think going into a, a horror film, especially one that's set with technology of cell phones, our bar is pretty low. Like, we know, okay, you're going to probably have to take care of these in some way. And as long as you just don't really fuck it up, we usually accept it fine. This movie, they did it in a really well, really logical well. But for Mischief Night to screw it up that bad... <laughs> Yeah, it was really bad. And then and then you got Don't Breathe, where the characters have their cell phones in their pockets the whole time. The beginning of it was kind of stupid because fucking 13 had his phone on vibrate while invading the home of a blind guy. And, you know, that's ugh, whatever. But they did use the plot to give them a reason to not call the cops and to not call for help. So right. at least they did a decent job of giving them a reason not to use them instead of just taking them away from them or making them broken or whatever. And then this one, a serial killer realizing that his victim is impaired and taking the opportunity to steal her phone and control it, that's a great way to handle it, especially for a film like this. There's a moment she's Skyping her sister and her sister's like, what's that in the background? I thought I saw something move, but he's already gone. And later she... How, how does it go where there's the the pictures come in? Because that's kind of what leads to the reveal of something's happening. Yeah, that's how she figures out that there's someone around her. She sits down with her laptop to try and continue writing, trying to finish her second book, and she starts receiving picture messages in her whatever her text app thing is. But she notices the pictures are coming from her cell phone, and they're pictures of her, like, right now, sitting at her laptop and stuff. And that's when she realizes someone's here, they have her phone, she finally gets a look at the killer who's outside she runs around starts locking all the doors when she finally gets it to where he can't get in immediately starts to try and call the police on her laptop and that's when he goes and cuts the power out which cuts off her wi-fi meaning she has no communication with the outside world anymore and there's also, just for good measure, uh, there's also a little scene where he checks to see if the neighbor's Wi-Fi is available on her phone, and he makes sure that that's not an option either. Yeah, that was a great touch by our writer's director, because I, I probably wouldn't have even thought about it, but the fact that the killer does and the writers do is a great touch. Just opening up the phone, look at the Wi-Fi. Neighbor's Wi-Fi is locked, password protected, and she doesn't have the password, so safe to assume she doesn't have their password on her laptop either so she locks all the doors you know he counters every move she makes to try to call for help and there's a point where they're kind of face to face and there's sort of the realization that this is this is happening and she tries to get out of it by saying i you know you're wearing a mask i've no idea who you are i can't i'm not going to say anything i can't and he responds dramatically as would be expected i can come in anytime i want and i can get you anytime i want but I'm not going to, not until it's time. When you wish you're dead, that's when I'll come inside. Nod your head, if you understand. Then we can have some fun. Um, and at which point he takes off the mask and essentially communicates to her, we're doing this. Uh, this is happening. I, I like his confidence here. He's like, I can get inside whenever I want. Little does he know she has, like, bulletproof glass for fucking windows, but... Um... <laughs> <laughs> I, this is this is a great like mini confrontation and him setting up the quote unquote game that they're going to be playing for the rest of the movie and as well as our 
main character finally realizing like what this is because she didn't see her neighbor being stabbed you know she doesn't she doesn't know exactly what the threat is here maybe he just wants to break in and steal some shit uh until you know she now sees he has a crossbow a knife he's very clearly fucking insane or psychopathic and has blood on him like some shit's going down yeah and by taking his mask off he's basically communicating to her you know this is going to end with one of us being dead and it's not going to be me kind of thing and so throughout this movie and then especially in the next section there's going to be several moments when maddie is outside of the house or moving through it and we're kind of introduced to the sound um, that they utilize there's sound of insects and and um, these weird deaf sounds that happen that kind of let the audience know this is she's not hearing something um, as kind of trying to signal to us um, as well as some interesting moving shots throughout the houses there as they're moving around she's trying to escape tell us about some of these i i like it when the filmmakers actually show the audience or tell the audience what it's like for the character that is deprived of a sense and don't breathe we had the scene where our characters were all put into complete darkness and they let the screen go black for a solid second or two. And it really lets you get into that frame of mind of, oh, I'm in a strange place and I can't see a goddamn thing. This, there will be a loud noise or something going on and then the sound will kind of cut out and then it's replaced with these quote-unquote deaf sounds, which some of them just kind of sound like if you plug your ears really good and you get that like conch shell wind noise kind of thing going on which I'm not a huge fan of that but then they also used sonogram recordings uh, that's interesting I'm not really sure that's how stuff sounds to deaf people i i don't know how what that would sound like i've never heard a description of it but it's a good enough way to give the effect of a character not being able to sense things around them uh, only what they see while giving you, still giving you something to listen to because once again if it was completely quiet you might be just distracted by whatever's going on around you yeah. The other part of this is the constantly moving camera and the shots to keep it more interesting, especially when you can't hear what's going on. I mean, you deprive the audience of a sense. You got to keep them stimulated. We talked about this in that one shot with Don't Breathe, where the camera was constantly moving. And even if it highlighted something, it moved in on it slowly and then kept moving. It never really stopped. They kind of did some similar stuff with this, and but instead of just like getting a few shots and stitching to them together with CGI, they actually used handy cams and, you know, stabilizing rigs to constantly move with Maddie as she's walking around the house and constantly keep the camera moving so we don't have to stop, 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 and just get steady shots the whole time. Unfortunately, <laughs> this ruined all the sound they got on set because you have about six or seven people all just walking across the room with the actor so you would just hear footsteps all over the goddamn place so they had to redo pretty much all of the sound for the film 
I'm sure there were some scenes that they got to use the actual sound on set, but a lot of it got replaced later, which is going to give some varying results throughout. You mentioned the bug noises, like, later on when she goes outside. The noises of nature are just really inconsistent and completely absent for a lot of the time, which is upsetting. Yeah, and and that's that's another thing, too. We're from a place that has... A lot of insect uh, orchest- orchestral <laughs> sounds. <laughs> and it can be very loud. And, you know, it's not always very loud, but it's always present. And like you said, it's inconsistent. It'll be very quiet sometimes or not there at all. And then other times it will be louder and more present. And so just some inconsistency with the sound there. Mm-hmm. And uh, this all kind of plays into this next section of the film where it's the context has been delivered, the killer and Maddie have been introduced, and the kind of rules of the game, so to speak, have been established, and now the game is afoot, so to speak. Um, and it's a series of Maddie trying to figure out ways to escape, to call for help, uh, to run away, um, using a series of various different astra- distractions to try to momentarily distract the killer, to try to escape or get to some communication line or something like that. Slowly, she starts pushing further and further, at first just barely being willing to open the door and step outside to, you know, eventually running and climbing and really pushing the bounds of what she's willing to do uh, when she finally kind of at the end of this has a realization of what she's going to have to go to, the link she's going to have to go to if she's going to have a chance. This is what we were talking about where the film and the plot get a little repetitive because I think it's three separate times she just tries to create a distraction in order to work her way out of this. The first one is setting off her car alarm so that she hopefully can get the phone off of the dead friend's body, which we skipped over because we're burning through this plot just to not get bogged down. But my favorite part of the movie is when the killer is knocking on the bedroom window with the dead neighbor girl's body, just like holding her up and swinging her arm at the window. Uh, I love it when serial killers are having fun in movies. It's really great. (laughs) But uh, Maddie remembers the phone going in the back pocket earlier in the film. And so she thinks if she can get the killer to the other side, she can get the phone out of the pocket. Then what else is there? There's the... She throws the the flashlight. Flashlight's the last one. What's the one in the middle? I don't even... Uh, Car alarm? No, it was car alarm first. See, I don't even remember the second one because they're all just repeats of general theme yeah it's it's something there's something with light or sound that he runs off to momentarily (laughs) it's car alarm then she sneaks out gets under the porch and tries to run Mm -hmm. off but gets caught runs back into the house and then she throws a flashlight out into the woods starts to try to run gets caught gets shot by a crossbow (laughs) yeah it's it's a little repetitive, and I excuse it because it does inform us of the character more, which yeah. is her pushing the bounds of what she's willing to do. At first, she's barely opening the door and barely leaning outside to get the car alarm off. Then she's going all the way outside, closing the door behind her, hiding under the porch as he's literally walking over her and waiting for her moment to bolt into the woods. And then it's going up on top of the house, throwing the flashlight... And I guess planning to climb down a trellis or whatever down the side of the house. Uh, But once again, gets caught, gets shot with a crossbow. 
So none of it really works out, but she is constantly going further and further with it, escalating it, realizing that it's not going to be easy to get out of this by any means. Yeah. And at the end of this series, she is shot with the with a crossbow in her leg, but she does come away with the crossbow. She kind of closes the window. There's a stare down and she's now bleeding from the leg, but she now has a weapon if she can figure out to lo- how to load it. Yeah. And she watched him load it a couple of times before this. Like you'd think she'd have some kind of understanding. Like, first off, you should probably be standing to load one of these things. Yeah. I will say I, I like this as a weapon because it there's both a like a knowledge, a conceptual understanding. You have to be able to load it. You have to understand you have to pull the thing back. And there's different ways to do that. Some easier, some harder. And there's also a physical barrier, right? I mean, these things, if you've ever actually done it, like they're, they're not easy, especially like you said, if you're sitting down or in the wrong position. So it gives an excuse enough. It's reasonable she wouldn't be able to get it immediately. And that buys us time for the next scene i think the crossbow really kind of speaks to our killer as well because he would see it as a it's a skilled weapon you have to be strong and powerful to load it at least in his mind you have to be skillful to aim and hit your target not only that he thinks he thinks of himself as very intelligent because it's a quiet weapon it's not a gun it's not setting off this loud explosion it's quiet and stealthy and you can do it from the shadows and they might not see you might not hear you you know all of that kind of informing your character through his choice of weaponry the knife as well once again it's not loud it's and it's up close and personal yeah, and, and that's a good point. It kind of gets into who the killer is kind of as a villain and their their archetype. Like, how do they fit in with other archetypes, either in real life or in other movies? When she gets the crossbow and is in the bathroom, we're, we're introduced to the idea that he is a serial killer earlier when he takes the earring off of a dead neighbor girl. So he's taking a trophy, and that's a little bit of a signal like, oh, he's a serial killer, not just a spree killer. But then when she gets the crossbow and she actually sees the 13 notches on the side of the crossbow that's when it's like guaranteed confirmed he's done this at least 13 times up to now and it has like the one notch off to the left by its side just symbolizing that first kill he got and how that one stands out from the rest it's it's a great little touch and for someone that's into true crime like me i enjoy it a lot It's a nice little nod to be like, yep, this is how this guy works. This is how he thinks. And this is what he does. As as far as like slasher films go, which this is kind of a combo home invasion slasher serial killer, right? A lot of little subgenres we could throw at this thing, but I think it stands foremost as a home invasion movie. It's not like a character study of the serial killer. The fact that he's a serial killer is just a thing to tell you this is a grounded situation, even though it's heightened. It's not like fucking Freddy or Jason where there's clear supernatural shit going on. It's a more grounded way to introduce this kind of plot. But you you start thinking about these movie tropes with killers. I mean, like I said, Supernatural with Freddy and Jason. Freddy is a goddamn nightmare creature that lives in people's dreams <laughs> jason is an undead giant monster <laughs> you, you got crazy shit like that but this is more in line with movies like psycho 
Seven, The Clove Hitch Killer, which is a fantastic serial killer movie. The Strangers, eh, I'm not a big Strangers fan, but it still dives into this area. And then, of course, like Zodiac, which is based on the actual serial killer, the Zodiac Killer. You know, these all have their different parts. They're, they all kind of deal with different types of serial killers. Seven, you have the mission-oriented combined with visionary where he's trying to teach the world a lesson you know he's on a mission from god to teach the world to stop committing these ultimate sins clove hitch killer once again a lust thrill kind of guy he's totally driven by sex uh and then the strangers which is just an odd we're killing people to kill people kind of thing which is very generic home invasion stuff where there's no real reason behind the killers doing what they do they just kind of do it and it's lazy this our killer has a great motivation, and it's that he's a weird sicko who likes killing women. And as we'll find out, he sees himself as very as a very beta male, I guess we could say. He sees he sees other big jock guys as oppressing him and blah blah blah. You know, just really cringe shit like that. Yeah, there's kind of some some confidence issues there. I'm not a psychologist. That kind of does move us into, you know, Maddie now has the crossbow. She's in the bathroom. She's trying to patch up slash trying to load the damn thing. And that's going to take a while. And that buys us time. Did you want to cover the sexy scene? Yeah, there's this weird little bit. Where? Why? (laughs) It's kind of like, I. where did it come from? I think it's because Mike Flanagan is filming his wife, who is a very pretty lady. Uh, She's hot as hell in The Haunting of Hill House, you know? Like, she's a good-looking woman. But I think Mike Flanagan has a problem where he films his wife and sees the sexy in her, so therefore we see the sexy in it when she's bleeding out and just taking her pants off so she can bandage herself up. It it just played as awkward. (laughs) Yeah, it it came. It seemed to come out of nowhere, like you said, because it it could have easily been a scene that there was no sexual undertones because she's just like pulling her pants down a little bit to bandage her wound. But because the angles suddenly shift and there's like you can hear the Marvin Gaye in the background <laughs> and it's just like, she's oiled up. So, suddenly, suddenly there's tea candles you know just mean. floating in the bathtub, <laughs> rose petals everywhere, like the cold open from Mischief Night. Uh- <laughs> <laughs> And it's not, I mean, it's fine. It just kind of feels out of place maybe a little bit. <laughs> uh, yeah, it was It was just kind of awkward. And like, Mike, I get it. You're attracted to your wife. That doesn't mean you have to use angles that tell us to be attracted to. <laughs> but yeah, sexy scene. I don't know where. It's not that long. It's fine. It's good. <laughs> if unexpected, maybe a little bit. So she's doing that, which gives us time for, I think if this was a song, this is where the bridge comes in. <laughs> yeah. This is the bridge of the, the movie. It gives our main character a breath, which is fine because we've just seen her go through three different scenarios, which are all very similar to each other. So we don't want to just keep rehashing that. So neighbor boyfriend shows up. He sees the lipstick message on the door. He's about to call the cops when killer comes around with his flashlight in his face telling him to put his hands up and blah 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 parading as a as a cop even though there's no cop car he's wearing a vest over a fucking gray hoodie he's unshaven and has a neck tattoo doesn't have a gun or a badge but you know totally convinces neighbor boyfriend that he's a cop for at least a couple of minutes here 
Yeah, I like this scene a lot because it's there's enough red flags that the audience is obviously suspicious because we know who the killer is already. But it also like, you know, the na- the neighbor boyfriend squinting his eyes, you know, he's narrowing his field because something's off, but it's it's done well enough. You know, the guy runs out his flashlight is pointing towards the boyfriend, so he can't see very well. He's kind of blinded by the flashlight. He says things that sound very officials, like we got a 413 at, you know, <laughs> down the road and you know, he sounds very officially saying things that sound official his story is really weak some big guy you know like you knocked me over knocked me out i'm sorry but if you don't have a gun or a badge i'm not handing my fucking cell phone over to you Uh, i'm calling the police myself and then if they want to talk to you after that they can if you had just called the police yourself they would have told you pretty shortly that they haven't sent anyone out there Right. You you just got to take shit into your own hands sometimes and trusting someone who has no professional look about them, no uniform, no bat. You got to be a real stupid fucking character to fall for it. Yeah, yeah. Especially when he got to like he got knocked out and they took his stuff. It's such a weak, it's very weak story. Yeah. And I mean, we do get to see that the killer is not only a I mean, he's he's fairly intelligent like i think other things throughout the movie have shown that but he has been failing completely up until this point to kill maddie mm-hmm. so getting to see him be intelligent and kind of cover for himself really quickly he can think on his on his feet and he is obviously scared of this much bigger guy and yeah doesn't think he would be able to take him in a fair fight yeah he says as much and the last thing, too, I wanted to, to note is kind of a red flag. The boyfriend, I think, starts to notice. During an earlier confront- confrontation, the killer got his arm hit by a hammer <laughs> by Maddie earlier. And I think the boyfriend, like, starts to look and see, like, there's a wound. And the killer immediately, like, puts the flashlight back up to kind of blind him for a little longer. But the boyfriend eventually, even if he's a little slow, he does eventually kind of come around. Starts fibbing his own story about, oh, yeah, there's a key under the pot over there. Yeah, while he grabs a rock. Like, like, yeah, don't get me wrong. He finally figures it out, but it took him way too goddamn long. This is, I mean, I think the only, like, major logical fallacy i think with the movie there's there you can probably find some minor ones but this is one is big to me uh, that you notice as well is they're standing on a porch where the neighbor got stabbed numerous times and her body was down there before being dragged off this deck should be covered in blood they don't seem to notice it or note it at yeah, all and we've been on this porch multiple times throughout the movie including maddie like crawling out onto the porch exactly in the spot where the neighbor girl was stabbed like 20 something times and then dragged away everybody should be covered in blood and walking in blood on here and there's just none to be seen i do think that's that's one of the biggest problems for me you know what whatever we'll we'll get over it they get a free it's not it's not like mischief night where the entire house should have been covered in blood (laughs) yeah and it's also not like mischief night where there was fifty thousand logical fallacies there's there's mostly just this one. yeah for the most part yeah he's finally about to hit the killer with the rock and maddie shows up great knocking on the window which distracts boyfriend uh neighbor boyfriend just long enough to be stabbed in the fucking throat by the killer oh my god and it's like a hot knife into butter it just slips in oh god I, this it's, it's pretty great though him trying to like 
hold the wound closed and slowly going down onto the ground. Meanwhile, the killer's just like, yep, never would have taken you in a fight, man. <laughs> Glad she showed up when she did. <laughs> and he's, he literally says something to that effect out loud, which I thought was funny. <laughs> it feels, it's funny, sort of, but it also feels like um, like something needed to be communicated to the audience, and this was like the most direct way, even if it was a little off i i thought it was good i mean he's talking to himself but you know him looking at maddie and thanking her like at this point he has to feel invincible mm -hmm. he, he's fucked up so many times so far tonight and yet he's still up and around and he's still getting by everything is just starting to show him that i'm gonna get away with this and and as he seems to be one that kind of gets off on the fear, that's why he wants to play all these games. And so he's looking at Maddie, who you know sees this bigger boyfriend, neighbor's boyfriend. You can tell she's a she's afraid now because he's supposedly out of the picture. And as the killer is kind of reveling in his victory, like Henry Cavill out of The Witcher, the guy gets up and just tackles the killer again and starts trying to choke him out <laughs> yeah I, I love the play dead for half a second and then get up and bull rush the guy <laughs> and finally gets the rear naked choke he's going for the takeout just when you think killer's about to pass out old neighbor boyfriend bleeds out <laughs> which uh, i think brings up another good point of maddie is kind of looking out upon this and is freaking out and stuff but she doesn't do anything she just kind of watches yeah i i was really pissed about this because when i was watching it the first time i was thinking like okay this is where she realizes in order to get out of this i'm gonna have to go for it and go take the opportunity to help neighbor boyfriend kill the fucking guy or at the very least incapacitate him while you have help and he's helpless on the ground you know but she just stays inside, keeps the door locked, and doesn't try to help at fucking all. Instead, we get served up to my biggest issue with the movie, which is basically a dream sequence of her running out the side door and getting caught by the killer. Fake out. Yeah, you haven't done any of this up to this point, so this is where we bring back that writer brain thing. She said that she she saw the endings of her books as if they were a movie being played out in front of her, but when she's writing, we don't see the ending of the book being played out in front of her. We just hear her voice in her head talking about it and saying what to write. And then we get this, which is her imagining the end to her story, but it's played out and then revealed to be just in her head. I, I get you introduced it in dialogue, but when you didn't actually do the thing, you're, you're mixing your movie language there. Yeah, it's like... You know, this domino, so to speak, wasn't set up well. You know, you kind of halfway did it and put a raisins box up. And then you knocked it over and said, look, we knocked over the domino, but it was a raisins <laughs> box the entire time. Nicely done. I like that. <laughs> it's the only thing close to... And you can't convince me otherwise. It's similar shape and size to a so, domino. So now, we, now we have dominoes and then raisins. Uh, raisins. <laughs> so uh, raisins are fake dominoes <laughs> yeah they're poorly set up dominoes <laughs> um yeah and that's when we get this whole part of her like cowering on the floor and the voice becomes her own voice but not only that we have ghost image of her kneeling beside herself telling her this option's out this option's out this option's out here's the reasons why 
the only option left is to kill the bad guy. Okay, but we were told at the beginning of the movie the voice in her head was her mom. So why isn't she envisioning her mom sitting beside her telling her these things? Could we not just get one more cheap actor to come in and play her mom? Yeah, or, or change the plot to where the mom isn't mentioned and it's just her or something, if that was a big issue. Yeah. I mean, the I think the, the scenes are kind of fun to watch the supposed domino fall, but because it's not set up properly and because even the execution being her and not her mom, which is what we were told it was going to be, and it's her own voice and not even some old lady's voice, it's it's just contradictory. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't... I don't know what else to say about yeah. it. It just it just kind of that whole plot point just kind of falls apart when you start looking at it. But it it does kind of go through her running through the options in her head or oh I'll run out and I'll try to turn the power back on so I can call for help or I'll try to run this way or that or whatever other plan she comes up with and they all in her mind these scenes basically fail and end in her dying. And so she's kind of faced with the realization that she kind of has to face this killer one way or the other. The killer at this point, I guess, is just tired of waiting. And I think he's, oh no, this is where she, okay, she realizes that she has to do what she has to do, opens the door and fires a crossbow bolt. After neighbor boyfriend dies, he's uh, he searches neighbor boyfriend's pockets, finds a pack of cigarettes. He's taking a little smoke break and just kind of talking to himself. And the whole time he's been telling himself and Maddie, like, I can get inside whenever I want, so he's not really worried about it, but he does realize it's getting late, and he kind of needs to wrap this shit up. One good touch here I do like is when he finishes the cigarette, he stomps it out on his shoe and then puts the butt in his pocket, once again showing that he's done this stuff before and he's used to covering his tracks. Problem here is he was fucking gouged in the arm with a hammer early in the movie, so his blood is all over this goddamn crime scene. He's fucked. <laughs> Yeah, there's DNA everywhere. And then the cat walks up to him. That's where we find out that the cat's name is Bitch, which Maddie's been referring to her as Bitch through the whole movie, which is funny. And just as he's about to fucking stab the cat, I guess just to be a menacing psychopath, Crossbow Bolt comes in out of nowhere. Miss, or it hits him in the shoulder area, I guess? Yeah, somewhere where it... it hurts obviously but isn't vital right it's yeah somewhere in the shoulder and he starts running after her she barely gets back inside drops the other crossbow bolt for some reason reaches back outside to get it and he fucking slams the door on her hand and stomps on her fingers this is where we admit to you the listeners that the real specific genre the entire time, like Bruce Willis, is about hands being mangled. And I, I don't know what you mean by Bruce Willis, but okay. Because <laughs> nobody was... Rango no, and Jango Nobody was dead the whole time. Rango too. <laughs> um, we, we just hate hands. And hands yeah, bad. hands suck. All of them should be shattered forever. <laughs> That's... I want hooks. <laughs> <laughs> damn i should have i should have found a home invasion movie where someone has no hands that just would have been the ultimate oh real god. specific episode <laughs> god i just had i'm gonna pitch you a movie peter pan but it's real life and just some crazy kid's delusion and his neighbor captain hook is just a guy that you know lost his hand in the war or whatever and now this creepy peter pan kid is trying to break into his home and it's captain hook it's i don't know whatever it's dennis the menace but through a delusional child's view <laughs> he's just terrorizing his older neighbor who has one hand <laughs> 
And like the French long uh, curly hair too. <laughs> Gotta have it. Uh, so she shoots him with a crossbow bolt. You know, he runs after her, smashes her hand, but eventually she's able to get inside and lock the door. Now she's bleeding from the leg and her hand and she's screwed. At this point, he grabs like a shovel or something and starts really wanting to come after her and try to break through the glass. She realizes it's now, this is it. This is what it's all come down to. Runs over to her laptop, writes a, you know, I love you, mom and dad. Here's a brief description of who the killer is. I died fighting. That might be what happens here. So she kind of faces reality, so to speak, realizes this is the only option she has to do. And she kind of has to face it, which coincides nicely with some of the other issues that have been going on in her life. And in the background, we have this really fun scene or visual of the killer trying to break through the glass, which is apparently bulletproof. And we see the glass like spider webbing and and breaking, but not quite shattering through as he's trying to come after her. Yeah, I, I don't know what the fuck this glass is made out of. I think it's the same stuff the Mobile is made out of, but... <laughs> I, I don't know what the fuck is going on with that glass. I guess we just couldn't have glass every fucking where. Who the fuck knows? So she retreats up to the bathroom, kind of moving into the end here. I, I did want to talk about our killer's psychology a little bit more. Is he realistic? Uh, there's some good touches in there. With the crossbow and everything, you get the whole hunter motif, you know, but he's not like setting traps or trying to lure her outside or anything. I think instead of her like causing a distraction and getting shot, I think he should have been hiding and acting like he left. And so she feels safe enough to leave the house, and that's when he shoots her in the leg. Something like that would have been a better touch and a little more consistent for our killer. He's very confident except for when he is dealing with neighbor boyfriend. Once again, showing he goes after women because they are weaker than him. And he has a huge inferiority complex, which is very real. I mean, uh, you think about people like David Berkowitz, the son of Sam killer. He was a giant pussy. He literally shot people with a forty-four pistol while they were sitting in cars. He just walked up beside their car and shot into it. And on top of that, even at those close distances, he didn't kill, like, half the people he shot. He was also crazy as shit, but... That's beside the point. The one real-world killer this guy really did remind me of was the quote-unquote crossbow cannibal Stephen Griffiths. He's an uh, English serial killer. He was a fucking criminal science PhD student, and in his papers and to his psychiatrist and stuff, he was talking about becoming a serial killer. Like, dude was fucking ridiculous, and cops had an eye on him before he even started killing which is ridiculous within itself, but he he was hunting prostitutes and shooting them with crossbows in alleyways and then stabbing them and taking their bodies back to his apartment and eating parts of their bodies and stuff. Like, really sicko dude. But he was more attacking people that he thought the police wouldn't care about. He was just attacking prostitutes just because he saw them as lesser and figured that the police would consider them lesser as well. So this guy, yeah, where does this guy fit in? What is he closest to? He's probably closest to, like, a, a thrill killer. Like, he's just doing it for the thrill of killing people, but clearly has that whole power control thing to him because he, get, he gets off on controlling the actions of his prey, basically keeping Maddie locked up in the house and just playing with her, showing that he's better than her, that he can 
control every aspect of her. My only huge problem with his psychology is that he uh, has no sexual motive at all. Like, even when he's stabbing neighbor girlfriend, he's just, like, dead-eyed looking past her and not even paying attention to what he's doing. Which, in real life, there would be tons of sexual motive mixed in here. Especially if you're only attacking, or only purposefully attacking women. That would be driven by sex in one way or another. So he's, yeah, he's an interesting figure. And it's kind of hard, like you said, to categorize him perfectly. Because he doesn't quite fit every... You know, he isn't quite a hunter archetype, but he has some aspects of it, but goes against that type in other ways. But as we kind of begin to head towards the final scenes of the movie, we have Maddie, who, like you said, have barricaded herself in the bathroom, has the crossbow, and has it trained on the door into the bathroom. And this is a very interesting scene because it kind of zooms into her and she's kind of becoming more groggy over the course of these scenes from blood loss and fatigue Um, And she's kind of leaned up against the tub to her back um, as she's kind of has to limp and isn't able to move much. She basically just is ready to fire when he enters. It's zoomed in pretty close on her to where you don't see a whole lot of the peripheral. It's kind of blurry and you see something moving in the background. You realize it's glass falling. And a second later, you see him dropping down into the tub behind her. And this is a point where I think it's either quiet or just the death noises. They've really minimized the sound at this point. Yeah, I think it's just the death noises. So you're hearing what she hears, but you are getting to see what she doesn't see, which is a fun little thing for the audience. I think it works really well. And they've done it multiple times throughout the movie where the audience has information she doesn't. And it really ratchets up that tension, which is good. Mm-hmm. So he drops in and he kind of, there's a brief moment where the perspective changes and you can hear sound again. And he's crouched behind her in the tub, looking at her and realizes she has no idea he's there. And he's basically earned victory, so to speak, in this sick game. And he says something to the effect of, you know, he kind of chuckles to himself and says, oh, Maddie, or something like that. And that act of speaking lets out some air that hits the back of Maddie's neck because she's that close to him. She realizes something's up as he's going to stab her and immediately shifts and moves. You know what? I think that you're holding out on me. I bet if I hit the right spot, I can make you scream. (laughs) To where he only hits her shoulder and she instead stabs him in the throat. Where does he get him in the chest? She gets him in the leg. Yeah, this is great. I mean, she uses her other senses, finally realizes he's there, and gets him back for it. She does get a good wound on her shoulder, so she's not getting out of here scot-free. And I do enjoy that she is constantly being hit with these problems throughout the movie, just getting more and more injured and more tired and exhausted being able to see that in your character really does matter whereas like mischief night the girl continues to look exactly like she did earlier in the day and she's not tired she just becomes more and more worried i guess through the the movie which is about all they do you could really see the effect here on maddie as she you know stabs him and then leaves the bathroom starts limping down the stairs because of the you know wound in her leg there's been enough blood lost where she's clearly groggy and falls down in the kitchen and here's the next couple like 
These scenes are, are very short because we're at the very end of the movie, but all of those dominoes that were set up prior are about to tumble down. So Killer comes running down the stairs to, to meet her. We didn't mention it, but earlier when she first found out there was a killer here, she ran, got the hammer and a knife, and when she's getting the hammer, she like throws some things out of the cabinets. You see like a spray bottle and stuff, as well as some fucking like raid-type bug spray for wasps and hornets and shit and she kind of retreats downstairs they're both hurting limping around kind of slow she sits down beside the open cabinets looking up at him you fucking cut <laughs> and she just gives him this what seriously dude <laughs> like, like eat shouldn't die kind of look and as he's coming in she just picks up that bug spray and hits him right in the fucking eyes with it it's fucking beautiful <laughs> as well as immediately gets up grabs the fire alarm that was introduced earlier turns it on which this is good to know for me too like the fact that deaf person would need a fire alarm so loud it actually rumbles in your chest to wake you up if you're sleeping. That's interesting. And the fucking bright-ass strobe light. So she's using that to disorient the hell out of him while she can. And they just go in for this big boss fight. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, it works briefly enough for that kind of final confrontation where they kind of lock together. And he gets to the point where she's on her back. He's trying, attempting to strangle her. And there's a great moment, I think, of like literally scenes of her life flashing through her eyes. Very brief moments of who you presume are her family or parents or whatever uh, throughout her life as she's unable to resist him. But there's one final domino that has been knocked <laughs> over yet. And we get a nice shot of the corkscrew, the wine opener on the ground. She's reaching for it, reaching for it. Just when she's about to pass out, she gets her hand on it right into the side of his throat. You get to see it come through the other side. She rips it back out, and that's when we get the money shot of blood just all over her face. <laughs> and he falls over and bleeds out very quickly. Yeah, and, and I mean, that basically wraps up the movie. You know, she obviously finds a way to contact 911 the blue lights coming on in the background the cat walks up not being killed bitch the <laughs> lovely kitten yeah and we get we get that wonderful finish of just the similar to mischief night i dare say where we finish with the blue lights kind of hitting our main character who's or characters who survive Maddie just like is sitting there exhausted still pleading out and just gives this little smirk of fuck yeah i did it <laughs> which is great and the last thing on that last domino of the wine cork this one was really interesting because the first time we talked about this i don't think i recognized like consciously that it was the domino was set up you know she's drinking wine so you like assume there's a corkscrew around so when there's one that's been knocked over and is on the ground nearby it doesn't feel like it's been placed there for Maddie to use. It's it's very reasonable that it's there. It's they very did a great job of subtly setting up. That yeah, domino. I think it does show her like right after or right when she's walking outside to talk to a neighbor girl. I think it shows her actually opening a bottle with the corkscrew, but it's not like it slowly zooms in on the corkscrew and then backs out or even the worst way of doing it just giving a shot all of its own of the corkscrew and then cutting back to their master yeah, yeah they did it really smoothly just kind of subconsciously setting up that that's there 
Yeah, it's not like a video game where it's like sparkling saying, please look at me. <laughs> I'm glad we mentioned that because I know there were probably some people who didn't realize it was set up and were already yelling at us at some point. But it was, so bye-bye. The other thing I got to go ahead and cut off right now um, is the runtime for this movie is only 82 minutes. And I know, Mischief Night, I made a huge deal about how they didn't make it to 90 minutes and how that's a surefire sign of a hack making a movie. The difference here is I wasn't bored throughout this movie. <laughs> it also didn't have characters doing stupid shit between every line, like make out with each other for 45 seconds because we don't have enough script to fill out the time. If Mischief Knight had cut out all the dead space in that fucking movie, even excusing the quote-unquote tension-building parts, if you just cut out the dead space where we should have had more action or more lines, it would have ended up being like a fucking 65-minute movie. It was a real piece of shit. Yeah, yeah, that's the huge difference, is uh, Mischief Knight trying to pad their film length still couldn't hit 90, and this one came pretty close with very lean, no, no... Not much extra padding right. at all. And everything that happens in the movie has a purpose. Uh, there's nothing that's mm -hmm. there just to be there. Everything either informs us more about Maddie or informs us more about our killer. And that's how it should be. So this is our, Hush is our third movie in this real specific genre. You know, what are your, what are your thoughts about this? Final comments, thoughts. Okay, so... Like I said, most for the most part, this movie is great, in my opinion. I enjoy home invasion movies, my favorite like subgenre of horror, and then you throw a serial killer into it too. Oh, you're you're hitting all the right marks for me. But the whole writer brain shit, along with the fake out part, that shit really throws a wrench in an otherwise good movie. I understand why they had to ADR a lot of the sound, but uh, you got to do a little bit better. Uh, budget constraints, I'll let it go. But it, it could have been done better. Overall, I'm giving this one, I think, a 6.5, which is the same I gave Don't Breathe. To compare that, when we originally recorded this, I think I gave it an 8. But the more and more I think about it, those things really stand out. When you have an entire scene that is supposed to be a huge plot point fall apart, I can't really justify giving you a 7 or higher. Sorry, Mike. I like you a lot. <laughs> I, Oculus is one of my favorite weird movies, so thanks. <laughs> I um, Yeah, I, those are good points. I, I, I like the movie. I think it's my favorite of the three in this specific genre we've watched. You know, the killer, though there were some inconsistencies, I understood that they had a drive. It made sense. I like that they did some things a little different with the killer being intelligent enough to pretend to be a cop for a few minutes. I like that the boyfriend kind of had a second wind there that was kind of unexpected and made it feel real and not just the killer wins all the time until the end when they don't. They did, for the most part, a good job of setting up those dominoes and knocking them down, except for a raisin here or there. <laughs> and, and you're killer is an actual character is the other thing like so many mm -hmm. of these movies just have blank slates as killer i mean i mentioned fucking what was that shit movie i talked about earlier very briefly strangers. yeah the strangers <laughs> like your killers are nothing they're just two women and a man in masks Ooh, i'm i'm so spooked right now what no i'm yeah. much more terrified of a 
full-on character that is a serial killer. Yeah, and it's much more entertaining and, and interesting because that's kind of what Mischief Night was. I mean, they were just people in whatever outfits they were wearing, and there was no drive, no reason. They didn't seem to be enjoying it that much. Like There was not revenge. It was unclear like, if the boyfriend was involved or not, which if you had included a scene where we find out the boyfriend was involved and he was having a problem with the other killers, give me some fucking drama, man. It's a movie. Nah, yeah, you're totally right. So, Hush, pretty good film. If you like horror, I'd watch it. I, I, I still recommend this movie. I have a lot of fun with it, even despite that one shitty point. So so what's next? What's our last film in this specific genre? How do you think it's going to kind of rack up and compare to the ones we've previously seen in this group? What's coming up? So next week we're doing Wait Until Dark 1967, directed by Terrence Young and starring one of my favorite actresses, Audrey Hepburn. Ah, get ready. Uh, Audrey Hepburn's playing a blind woman who's dealing with three con men and having to just get out of a really shitty situation and figure out what's real and what's not. And it's really fun. Uh, I will say it plays more as a suspense thriller than it does a horror, but I think there's enough horror at the end to still classify. Yeah, I, I agree. I really enjoyed Waiting Till Dark, and especially if any of you out there um, are like me, where horror maybe isn't your, your first go-to. This one, like you said, it definitely is at the end for sure, um, but there's a lot of fun, interesting characters uh, played by basically one guy just doesn't call himself. <laughs> Alan, Alan Arkin is the main bad guy in it, and he is fucking fantastic. I'll have a lot more behind-the-scenes info and interview quotes to pull from for the next one. You mentioning how good the next movie is just kind of brings to thought, in, in the world we live in today, there's a lot of negative out there. A lot of podcasts, like, purposefully do bad movies, which are great fodder for humor and everything. But at the same time, it's nice to get to do good movies and talk about the good things and the things that people do right. And while it can be a little more difficult to put it together and vocalize what we love and why we love it, it's so much more satisfying to do that than just shit on movies. I, I love our Mischief Night. Because without Mischief Night, this whole thing would just kind of seem like we're running through the same four or five good comments on stuff. And I'm glad we got a shit post, basically, to talk about. But <laughs> these these good movies are just so much more satisfying to talk about in the end. It's nice to have a low bar so you can see how high the, the high bars Absolutely. are. Absolutely. <laughs> so, everybody, go watch Wait Until Dark. I think it's on, what was it, on Amazon or something? Might might have to... Yeah, it's on Amazon. For, yeah, you might have to rent it. I think it's Totally worth it. worth it. I actually ended up buying it because I think it was like twice the price of renting it. Yeah, just go get it. It's totally worth it. And we'll be back next week to talk more about that. Until then, we are real specific. Yeah! <laughs> Outro music. Da, 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 da. <laughs>